thank you. One day we will stand in your presence and we will rejoice. All of the pain and the suffering of this world will be behind us. And we will be on our faces thanking you for all you have done for us. We are so grateful to be called your children. We are so grateful to have the truth of your word at our disposal, to have these opportunities to gather as a family and to worship together. And we pray that you have been pleased this morning as you have heard our voices singing, giving thanks. And now, Lord, as we gather around your word, I pray that you will use it to speak to us. Would you help us to understand it by your Holy Spirit? Would you take the truth as you have promised that you will and use it to pierce our hearts, break through our walls and our defenses and our apathy, all the things that would keep us from hearing your voice this morning. It is you that we seek. It is Christ that we honor. And I pray that that will happen here together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people descend on the city of Pamplona in northeastern Spain. And they gather there every year for the same reason why people gather in a lot of different places at certain points. They gather for a huge festival and lots of partying. We have that in different places in our world, don't we? In New Orleans and Sao Paulo, Brazil, and those kinds of places, there are all these festivals. The one that happens in Pamplona in July is a little bit different. Along with all of the eating and the drinking and the merriment is a little something they call the running of the bulls. Have anybody ever watched any of this, ever seen a clip of this on TV? It is wild and crazy. The running of the bulls is just that. A bunch of slightly off-balance people go out in the street and they turn loose fighting bulls to chase them down the street. And these people willingly do this. This is not a punishment. This is not some retribution for anything. They choose to be in the street with these bulls. They do it every day for nine days. These are not milk cows that you see in the pasture when you drive to work in the morning. These are fighting bulls with long, sharp, pointy horns, and they're angry, and they don't want people in front of them. They've been doing this for hundreds of years since they started keeping track. I don't know how many people died before this, but they started keeping track for some reason in 1911. Fifteen people have been killed. Hundreds have been gored as a result of running with the bulls. There was a man named Bill Hillman. He's an American journalist, and he's an expert on the running of the bulls. Uh, Not only an expert, but he wrote a book entitled How to Run with the Bulls. However, knowing about running with the bulls and even knowing enough to write an instruction manual about it was not enough because on July 3rd, 2014, Bill Hillman was running with the bulls and he got gored. Now, he recovered, but he did admit from his hospital bed that he might need to update the book a little bit. 
Or perhaps, I think, maybe practice what he put in the book in the first place. I tell you that story because I want you to understand this morning that being an expert on something doesn't necessarily mean that you put it into practice in real life. Now, last week, if you were here, Pastor Tim talked to us about the gospel. And he said this, the gospel is life-changing news about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The gospel means that God has provided for us a way to be right with him, to have our sin debt paid for, to have our, our guilt erased. And at one point as he was teaching last week, he said this, the gospel means that it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've been, it doesn't matter what you've done, you have not gone too far for the grace of Jesus Christ to reach you. That's good news. That's good news that we need to know. We need to know that we all need the gospel. We need to know that we're all equally lost without it. But now, now that we know what the gospel is, we need to keep going. Now that we know what the gospel is, we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with it? Why do we ask ourselves that question? Because we don't want to be like Bill Hillman. We don't want to say, oh, I'm an expert on the gospel. I know what the gospel is, and yet not put it into practice, and yet not have it change our lives, especially considering what's at stake. Now, running with the bulls, I guess you could lose your life. But what's at stake when we know the gospel but we don't put it into practice while our very eternity is at stake. The gospel is not merely meant to be known. The gospel must be accepted, understood, and lived out. And this morning, I want to spend a few minutes looking at some scripture together and see what God has to say about what we must do with the gospel. So if you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Today we're going to do a little bit like Tim did last week, and that is we're going to look at two or three different passages of Scripture. We're not just going to be in one place. So Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. This is a well-known verse. Some of you will probably recognize it as I read it or as you find it in your Bibles. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So not only do we need to know the gospel, but here's the first thing. We're going to talk about three things this morning. First thing is we must accept the gospel. Now what Tim talked about last week is a process. There is a process of knowing what the good news is. Now, for some people, knowing the good news, knowing the gospel, only takes one time. Sometimes people hear the gospel the very first time, and they immediately accept it. They believe it, they understand it, and they accept it. But for others, they might hear it a dozen times, a hundred times, a thousand times. Sometimes this process takes years to understand and to know 
what Christ has done for us. But here's what I want you to think about this morning. Within the process of coming to know the gospel, coming to know what Christ has done for us, there must be a moment in that process. There must be a moment. A moment of acceptance. A moment of confession of sin. A moment of repentance and turning away from our sin. There must be a confession of the fact that you're a sinner who cannot save himself. A confession of the fact that Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul says here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? There might be a process. It might take you a while to come to know the gospel. But there has to be a moment when you accept the gospel. When you confess that he is Lord. Yes, this is true. I believe it. A confession that God, Paul says, has raised him from the dead so that you can be eternally saved from hell. The hell you deserve because of your sin. The hell that I deserve because of my sin. A little bit later in the chapter, Paul says this in Romans 10 verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the question that people ask when they come to the point where they realize that that their life is not going the way that they want it to go, that they seem powerless to fix it. What do I have to do to be saved? How How can I be saved? Well, Paul says if you sincerely believe that, if you sincerely accept the fact that Jesus Christ died for you and that you're a sinner, God will save you. The word saved literally means rescued. It means delivered from danger. But what we need to understand here is that mere knowledge of those facts, even assent to those facts, is not enough. I have to admit that I am a sinner. I have to believe that my only hope is what Christ did for me. I have to confess that he is Lord of my life. The gospel has to be accepted. Let me read you another verse. This one is in Galatians chapter 2 in verse 20. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what do we do with the gospel now that we know it? Well, first of all, we must accept the gospel. And here's the second thing. We must understand the nature of the gospel. And this is where perhaps many people get tripped up. I don't know where you are in your understanding of the gospel, but this is where some people slip into not understanding what the scripture has to say. Because Christ's work in us is not merely a renovation project. Now, if you turn on your TV this afternoon and you flip around the channels, I'm sure you'll find two or three channels that are dedicated to home renovation. 
For whatever reason, there are hundreds of shows out there right now about people who go in, they're flipping houses, they're, they're flipping houses, they're flipping Vegas, they're flipping all kinds of places, and they go in and they find a house that needs work. And they look around and they say, well, we're going to replace the countertops, that bathroom needs to be gutted, let's put hardwood and tile down and take up this old nasty carpet, and then they put it back on the market and they try to make some money from it. What we need to understand about the gospel is that that is not the nature of the gospel. The gospel is is not a renovation project. What does Paul say? Look at this verse here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So Paul is saying, Christ is not going to take your life and just fix it up. There is new life. My old self is crucified on the cross with Jesus. That means that my life cannot be renovated. Sometimes I think that's how we come to Christ. I just need a little bit of help. How many of you have ever said that when you've come to a difficult time? I just need a little help. God, I just need you to help me in this area with this thing. This is where I'm struggling. I need you to help me right here. Your life does not need to be renovated. It must be torn down. It must be thrown away. It must be hauled off. A few years ago, Tim and I were working up to Young's Farm and uh, we were doing some projects out in the greenhouse. There's, there's no end of things to do up there and work to be done. And we were working on something and, and Glenn came over. If you've ever been up to the farm and ever said you'd help out or if any of you have ever worked there before, you know, Glenn is famous for telling you to do something. And then about 10 minutes later, he says, hey, come do this. And then when you get started on that, he says, hey, come do this. And, and you never get back to the first thing you were doing. And we were working on something, and Glenn said, hey, I want you guys to come look at this. So we walked with him, and we walked up to the house. If you're familiar with the, the farmhouse up there by the greenhouses. And years ago, there was a section of the house that kind of stuck out toward the greenhouses, and that was the kitchen. You went up the stairs and went inside. Kitchen was in there. It's an old, old house. And Glenn said, I really want to fix this kitchen for Ma. That's what he called Elma. He always called her Ma. Yeah, I want you to fix this for Ma. So we walked in and said, can you guys just look at it and see what it would take? So we said, yeah, no problem. So we walked in and Tim and I looked at each other and I ran back out to the truck and I got the four-foot level and we put it on the floor. And if you've never fixed anything or worked on houses, this may not mean much to you, but if you have, it'll be horrifying The kitchen was about 20 feet long, and the floor was out of level about 10 inches from one side to the other. I mean, you almost started running downhill when you walked into the kitchen. It was terrible. The cabinets were coming off the wall. The trim was cracked because it had sagged so much. We went down inside the old dirt basement and we were looking and we could see the floor joists were set. They were the, you know, logs and they were all sagging and breaking. And we came back upstairs and we said to Glenn, we said, I don't know if you want to put any money into this. I don't know if you want to do it. I don't know if we can fix it. 
probably what needs to happen is it just needs to be torn down. So I don't know, I know that's not what you wanted to hear. And he said, no, okay, well, I understand. And so we went back to work. And about 10 minutes later, we heard the excavator fire up. And we came running out and we went and looked. And Glenn was taking the excavator and he was tearing that kitchen off the end of the house. So Tim and I looked at each other and we said, well, I guess we got a job to do next week. That's what needs to happen with our lives. We could have gone in, we could have put new cabinets in there, we could have put some new flooring down, we could have fixed the trim, but guess what? Guess what would have happened a few months later? The same thing that was already happening. Those cabinets would start to sag. That floor would start to crack. That trim would start to come off the walls because it needed to be torn down. It needed to be thrown away. It needed to be hauled off. And we need to understand when we look at our lives that there's no amount of willpower in us, in any of us, that can enable us to live a life that is pleasing to God. And yet so many people that I talk to are wrestling with just exactly that. Maybe you have said this before. I just, I just can't seem to do the right thing. I'm okay for a little while, and then I just screw up again. There is a new life to live And Christ is the one who must live it. We must die to ourselves. This is what Paul says, means when he says, I'm crucified with Christ. That old life has to go. I want to read a little quote for you here this morning. It's written by a man that probably most of you have never heard of. His name was A.W. Tozer. He's passed away now, but... 40, 50 years ago, he wrote several excellent books on Scripture and the Christian life. He says this, In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the root of worldliness among believers. Listen to this. This is what really struck me. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain on the throne of our little kingdom, but we doom ourselves to weakness and spiritual failure. We insist that Christ does all the dying. No dying for us. The nature of the gospel must be understood. It's new life that must be lived by the power of Christ. That's why in that verse I just read for you, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God. As long as we're trying to live life the old way, But just by trying harder, we will fail. Willpower is the old way. 
The power of Christ is the new way, an awakening to the new life that he has given to us. There must be complete surrender, and many of us fail to do that on a daily basis, moment by moment. I have to tell you this just personally. I hope this doesn't lower your opinion of me as your pastor any more than it may have already lowered for some reason in the past. I can't tell you how many times, how many moments during the day where I stop and say, Lord, I need you right now. I can't do this. I can't respond to the situation in a way that is going to please you in my own strength because I want to respond this way. I want to say this. I want to do this or I don't want to do that. It is a constant dethronement of myself. I have to put my old life on that cross many times a day because I'm human. There are things that I want to do, want to say, feel like doing, feel like saying that are not honoring to God. The only way that we can live this new life is by faith in the Son of God that He is going to live through us. Your willpower will not do it. One more passage. This one is in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone say he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What do we do with the gospel? First of all, we must accept the gospel. Secondly, we must understand the nature of the gospel. And now thirdly, James says, we must live out the gospel. Now, we know about grace. If you've been here at all, if you've heard us talking, or you've been to another church that teaches the truth, you know about grace. You know we don't deserve this. We don't deserve the gospel. We don't deserve salvation or the hope of eternity in heaven. But that doesn't absolve us of responsibility. We don't sit back and we say, well, Christ did this for us. He gave it to us, and so I'm all set. James is saying in these verses, what good is it to profess faith in God without life change? What good is it? He says it twice there. And that is a slap in the face to those who profess Jesus, who profess to be followers of Christ, and yet live in the old way. How many people do you know, or perhaps you might fall into this category here yourself, how many people claim to love the gospel, claim salvation, claim heaven, 
claim rescue from hell. Well, at least I know I'm not going to hell. Well, at least I know I'm going to be in heaven. And they claim all of those things. But go to work the next day and talk on the job with the same kind of language that everybody else uses. Or they watch the same crap on TV that everybody else watches. Or spend their money irresponsibly the same way or continue to use their time to further their own wants and needs or make no attempt to help or to care for other people. James says true faith is not hypothetical and it's not merely theoretical, it's real, it's active, it's compassionate, it's life-changing. Paul gives the example here. He says, what good is it if you say that you trust Christ and you see somebody in front of you that needs clothes and you say, be warm, brother. What good is that? Or you see someone that needs a meal and you say, hey, hope your belly's full. What good is that, James says? It's worthless. True faith is more than what we say or talk about. It is really super easy to come here on Sunday together with a whole group of us who all think the same way or basically the same way. And it's very easy for us to sit here and say, yeah, Jesus, woo, not going to hell. Going to heaven, so thankful. Let's do a little clapping. Let's do a little singing. This is great. And then walk out the door and do the same things that we've always done. James says, true faith is more than what we say or talk about. In fact, if we were to take time to read this whole passage, we would see that James says, true faith is more than what we even believe. If you read a couple more verses down here, do you know what he says? I bet some of you know what he says there. He says, even demons believe. Even demons say they believe this is true. Now, don't get me wrong. We must surely believe the right things. And truth matters. That's why we talk about truth here every week. But the truth must be put into practice. The gospel must be lived out. Now, when you read James chapter 2, or you hear me say these things here this morning, you may be thinking, wait, wait, wait. I thought we were saved by faith. I thought we weren't saved by works. I thought we weren't saved by the things that we do. Yes, we are saved by faith. We are not saved by the things that we do. We are not saved by our works. But when you put your faith into practice, if you're sitting here this morning and you say, I believe, I accept the gospel, I believe that this is true, I know it, and I have faith, when you put that faith into practice, it shows that it's real shows that it's real. 
I realize with every passing decade, I can say this and less and less people will understand what I'm saying. But you remember the old commercial, you got to put your money where your mouth is? Seven people remember that. Everybody else is too young. You got to put your money where your mouth is. You can say anything that you want. But when you put your faith into practice, it shows that your faith is real. I appreciate your affirmations of faith. I appreciate when we have conversations and you say, I believe it. Christ has done it for me. I'm all for Christ. But how do you live? Where's the change? Can I read that last verse 17 once again for you? James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Ineffective, powerless. The sign of genuine faith is real, measurable life change. In all the conversations that we have, if you have them with me, or you have them with Tim, or you have them with your small group leader, or somebody else in your life that you know is walking with God, and you say, how can I know? I'm not sure. I just don't know if it's real in me. How can we know that we're right with God? James is very clear. Our changed life will be the evidence If you cannot see how your faith has changed you, if you cannot see how your faith is changing you still daily, there is a good chance that you never had genuine faith to begin with. And I don't say that to make you doubt your salvation. I don't make, say that to make you fearful. I say that because that's the truth of the word of God to us. Let me ask you this question. At what point are you in regard to the gospel? Have you accepted it? Have you admitted your sin? Have you repented? I would guess that many that are here this morning have, perhaps most. If so, have you begun to understand this new life? that you cannot live it in your own strength? Have you bumped up against the end of your willpower enough times to know that there has to be a different way to live? And that is by putting yourself to death and allowing Christ to live through you? Have you begun to live it out every day? Has your life really changed? Is it continuing to change? Let me say it this way. You are saved by faith alone. But the kind of faith that saves you will not remain alone. Matthew records Jesus describing a scene in the future. It's a judgment at the end of time. And what Jesus tells us is that there is going to be, to say the least, an awkward moment Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's a scary scene, isn't it? What have you done with the gospel? What actions are you taking right now that demonstrate your faith in Christ? Where is the change in your life? You need to take yourself off the throne. Put yourself on the cross. My friends, as we close this morning, let me just say this. Two people that I know very well have passed away this week, Alma and my brother-in-law, Philip. And as I reflect on their lives, the same thought came to my mind with both of them. They did not waste God's grace in their lives. God extended grace to them, and they lived it. And that's my challenge to you this morning. Do not waste the sacrifice of Christ for you. Don't waste his life. He desires to make us into his image. To God be the glory for doing that. He is the only one who can. Let's stand and sing this song together as we close this morning. To God be the glory. Acknowledge before you that We can't live this life. We can't do it. Only through your strength. May we say with Paul, I am crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Help us to live this life by faith. I pray for everyone that's here this morning. You know where they are in regard to the gospel. There are perhaps some here who need to accept the gospel, who need to believe it and confess you and be saved. There are others that are wrestling with getting down off the throne of their life and allowing you to be Lord, allowing you to live this life through us. And still others are wrestling with putting it into practice. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that we can never be too far that your grace does not reach us. And I pray this morning that as we leave here, we would not waste the grace that you have extended to us. May we walk in a way that honors you and to you be all of the glory for that. In Christ's name, amen.